Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the word of God. One of the appealing aspects of Jesus and his teaching is that he breaks through the superficial to deal with the heart of people and things. And all of us experience the world and its troubles such that we want things to be fixed, but it seems impossible. And so we settle for cheats and hacks where we ignore certain things, where we excuse certain things. And yet, uh, we're affected by it all. And here comes Jesus who wants to penetrate the deeper levels and deal with the heart of the matter and the roots of things. And it's so refreshing and it's so hopeful that his standard is so high that he comes and, and calls us to a radically different way of life. And much of it is very appealing. So for example, if you are in a, an environment that feels superficial or friends that are superficial, you don't want that. You don't want friends that are polite to you, but when you're not there, gossip about you, slander you. You don't want to work in a workplace that creates incentives for you to be productive, but then you find that when you've done a good job, somebody that you work with takes the credit for the work that you've done and takes advantages of the incentives for their own career. Uh, we know that the kinds of things that come out that we wish weren't true, the uh, the bullying and the harsh words and the criticism. Um, sometimes they're not real and they affect us as though they are real. Um, and sometimes we just wish that it wasn't real and it comes out and it feels more true than other things. And so who's going to deal at the deep level with these profound issues? Well, one of the appealing things is Jesus comes and, and he tries to get uh, uh, through even... Uh, at the religious level. So his harsh critiques of the religious leaders are basically along the lines that they were being hypocritical. That's his concern that on the outside, they figured out how to look like moral, upright, religious, godly people, but inside they were rotten. And that's not an acceptable standard. So Jesus is wanting to open things and, and shine light into things so we can deal with the problems as they really are. So this is greatly appealing. It's the kind of world we want to be part of and participate in, and something in us wants real goodness. Um, 
But the other side of it is it feels like an impossibly high standard, and therefore, as appealing as it is, it could be very discouraging over the course of time to continue to try and follow Jesus, to apply his teachings, to live as he lived. And therefore, grace is utterly essential for Christianity. It's not just the way that we make our way in. And so the Christian message is none of us is perfect. We all need God's forgiveness, patience, and mercy. And that's the starting point. But we forget that along the way, we're also in need of constant grace because trying to live this better way can be so overwhelmingly discouraging because the reality is all of us have a lot that needs to change. And so we get overwhelmed by discouragement and lose the strength to change and lose a sense of that hope and we give up or we just settle for a hypocritical version. I mean, uh, Jesus was so clear in what he taught and yet the Christian church in every place and in every time is vulnerable to the same hypocrisies that he is trying to get us out of. And so understanding grace, the kind of grace that, that allows you with your current imperfections to still move forward so that you're actually healing, you're actually changing, you're actually growing. But of course, part of the problem is once we get in tune with what the standards really are, what the possibilities really are, um, that's when we first find out how bad the problem is. So C.S. Lewis, for example, writes in one place, he says, we never find out the strength of the evil impulse in us until we try to fight it. So here Jesus says there's a better way to live. And when we're thinking about the world and the possibilities, it's exciting. When we start to think about ourselves and the responsibility that comes with that way of life, it's quite overwhelming, even if we're convinced Underneath it all, it is fundamentally good. It's fundamentally right that if we persevere by faith, it will be rewarding. So when we're talking about grace, what is grace? Uh, well, we're looking at Psalm 36 today for the second time. Last week, we went through Psalm 36, and now we're going to look at it again, um, where in verses 1 to 4, we, we find a picture of the person who's just stuck, uh, bogged down, uh, descending into greater evil the destructive way. And by contrast, in verses 5 to 9, you have God and his greatness and his perfections. In verses 10 and 11 is a prayer uh, for the person who doesn't want to get pulled down, the person who wants to persevere, that God, by his grace and strength, would protect and watch over, and that we would not be brought under the harm and influence of evil. It's kind of like Jesus teaching us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not the same, but it's a similar kind of request and then the psalm ends in verse 12 with a reminder of the reality of what happens if you don't heed this. And so we want God's protection so that we are moving forward and growing. And so um, what is the grace that we're talking about? Well, we're, we're looking at Psalm 36 because Psalm 36 gives us uh, one of the facets, one of the pieces of or building blocks of what um, comes together in the Bible to give us a picture of God and his grace. And it's the, the phrase in, in our translation, steadfast love. You see it in verse 5, verse um, I think verse 7 and verse 10. In verse 7, it says, How precious is your steadfast love, O Lord, O God. Um, it's not just that God loves, but God is unchanging, unwavering. He's consistent that he loves us and delights in us when we do wonderful things, but he still loves us patiently when we're falling short. That steadfast love is precious. Precious means it's valuable. And so the writer of this psalm is taking hold of it, and hopefully you will take hold of it too. But precious also means it's rare. 
It's not what we see. Yes, people around us love us, but their love is not steadfast. It depends on their mood. It depends on what we're doing. It depends on a number of things. And therefore, we don't really know this steadfast love. We don't really understand grace, but we need it to persevere by following uh, this better way of life. Um, so in verse 9, it says, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. How do we deal with the discouragement of the reality of the life in which we live? Well, last week we looked at the first part of that, the fountain of life, the, the abundance, the, uh, the life-giving spirit, the water that God quenches our thirst with. This week, I want to um, take the image of light at the end of verse 9. In your light we see light. And first I want to talk about being in the darkness. But then I want to talk about being in the shadow, a way that I think helps us transition towards light that may, um, if you're feeling a bit stuck or a bit discouraged, may help you take the next step. But I want to begin in the, in the darkness in case you are encouraged, <laughs> because here we're going to talk about um, how miserable things really are. So sorry, uh, I'm not, I did not come with a goal to discourage you. But here's the reality of this picture of humanity, which is that um, all of us need change. We need growth. We need mercy. We need forgiveness. And one of the ways that you can see it is just some of our founding assumptions about God, who God is, and how to relate to God. So uh, the, the vision of verses 5 to 9 is about God's greatness and, and the things that he has made and his power and his glory and his beauty. And it's the kind of thing that if we see that, if we connect with it, it captures our hearts, it restores our souls, it fills us with hope, it makes it easy uh, to do what is good and right and to say no to what is wrong. Um, some people don't connect with it at all. It makes no sense. They don't see it. They don't believe it. But even in a gathering of the church where most of us do, um, we may believe it, we may have had some experience of it, we may have a conviction, we know it's true, but we're not connecting with it on that soul level that we look out in the world and constantly have that sense of awe that God is great. And with that greatness, then my current worries are somewhat trivialized. Instead, we don't connect with that, and our current worries uh, become great in our eyes. And so we have desires, for example, that can be fulfilled and found their longing in this connecting with God and his majesty and his greatness. But when we're not connecting, those desires are strong, and therefore, like thirsty people just wanting to be satisfied, we lack the patience to trust and to wait. And therefore, we, we start to relate to God differently because we don't see him as the wonderful creator, the loving father, the provider, the one who holds the future. But we see God as somewhere out there as maybe truth or the, the law giver and the rule keeper. And then with our desires, we start to relate to things in a sense where, where we think that the tension is fundamentally, I want good things for my life, and God doesn't want them. And then the question is, how do I mediate between getting what I want and not getting punished? And it's kind of like breaking a speeding law. Is it fundamentally immoral um, to break a speeding law? Well, that's we'll let our friends at the law school work out the details of that one. Um, uh, but you'd notice that it, 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 on a simple level, um, speeding is different than murder. Uh, the speeding law we need to come up with, whether it's for safety or for gas economy, whatever the case is. And so is 55 miles an hour the proper, most moral, ethical speed? Well, it's the speed that we've agreed on. 
um, some of us start to think of God that way, that God has his ways and, and God who has to govern the universe does it like an elected official or like a, a business leader who just needs to come up with policy. So God tells us uh, not to commit adultery and not to covet and not to bear false witness. But you have these desires. And so, so the, the tension we're living in is, how can I do what I like so I could satisfy myself and avoid being seen so I don't bear the consequences of it? And it's a, one of the things we have to recognize there is if, if that's the kind of foundation we're set up for failure, the foundation of the scripture is God who is good, God who provides, God who will be with you. And that, that stirs us to do something different with our desires than to think of God who's the one who's not now giving me what I want or telling me not to do the thing that I'm convinced will satisfy me. And seeing God as the lawgiver rather than the loving father means if I can do that and get away with it, that's my ideal, rather than trusting God who is wise, who might be warning us about that, not because he's arbitrary or just needs to come up with rules, but because God is protecting you and trying to keep you from self-destruction. The first four verses give us a picture of the person who doesn't live that way and then finds the reality of self-destruction. And so I'm using the language of darkness because one of the tools for us, if we do what we want to do, but feel we shouldn't do, Darkness is a tool that's useful in our toolbox. And this is what, whatever the standard, I'm talking about the Bible, I'm talking about Christianity, but it could be society standards, it could be your moral conscience, however you were brought up. But if there's a tension between here's what I wanna do, but I have some instinct, somebody won't approve it. The God of the universe, my peers, my roommate, whoever it is. Um, darkness seems like a useful tool because it, it covers us up and allows us to do what we desire to do. But something in there, that, that shame that wants to be hidden, that doesn't want to be seen, doesn't come to the surface to, to tip us off that what we want to do is probably self-destructive, that, that the voice that is leading us is probably not in our best interest. And so we welcome the darkness so we could do hidden things without realizing that if the thought is, I'm going to step into the darkness, do what satisfies me, and come out and hope there's no consequence, we've misread the situation. Stepping into the darkness carries its own consequence. Now you're in a place that you no longer see properly. And so now you can do what you like. You can enjoy the temporary satisfaction. But where are you? How do you get out? And how do you perceive the world once you're starting to change? Uh, verses 1 to 4 give us that sense of dissent. So uh, verse 1, there's no fear of God before his eye. Seeing correctly. Uh, so the concept of eyesight is important here. Is this back on? No, it was this that was picking me up. Uh, without a fear of God before his eyes, he's no longer seeing properly. And then what happens is his discernment changes. So in verse two, there's iniquity there, but he cannot find it out and hate it. And the, the language of verse four, he does not reject evil. That's what's in view with finding it out and hating it is, is to see this as a problem so I could choose not to do it. Once you step into the darkness driven by your desires, um, it's not simply that you don't see God, so it feels like you don't need to fear God's judgments, but you start not to see anything. You start to see in ways that are confusing. And so uh, what happens is unable to see, you need guidance and who is gonna guide you? Verse one, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Uh, 
uh, the person who has declined into such a way that they're confused um, can't see properly to make good judgments. And so what we're told is we have the Bible where God speaks into our life. We have Jesus, the teacher sent into the world. We have the Holy Spirit to lead us. But in our confusion, we find that we're needing somebody to listen to. And that problematic desire has an outsized voice. It keeps saying you'll never be satisfied. And the interesting thing is, in any manipulative voice, on the one hand, it will flatter you. And that's part of the imagery here of, of self-flattery. It will flatter you to say, look, you deserve this. It's not going to be that bad. What are you afraid of getting caught? And then you do it. And then the same voice comes back and says, oh, man, I can't believe you actually did it. Don't you know what everyone's going to think of you? Um, that's the voice that we want to watch out for. And that's the voice some people have internalized a voice that flatters you to do what you shouldn't do and then humiliates you in your imperfections. It's a different voice than the voice of God. And so, so the warning here is to gain the wisdom to recognize that, that that foundation of God's steadfast love, if that's true, if I, could, if I could hold to God's steadfast love, it will help me to see things so my judgment is different. And so a question for you as we reflect on these things is, does God want you to be afraid and filled with hatred? Is that the nature of the Christian life? Is that where God is bringing us? Because that's what it sounds like. The problem in verse one is there's no fear of God. People are not afraid enough. In verse two, you don't hate your sin. So is the nature of Christian maturity more fear and more hatred? And that's where it's worth pausing and making sure we understand what's being said here. Um, throughout the Bible, this concept of the fear of God is presented as something positive. And so verses 5 and following, uh, God's power, God's glory, God's wonder should make us uh, have a sense of that awe so that we tremble like any time you're in the, in, in the presence of somebody great, somebody famous, somebody skilled, somebody who did something wonderful for you, that it stirs your soul. So the book of Proverbs, for instance, says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When you can see God's greatness, it actually helps you to start to see other things more properly. The word fear in verse 1 is not the same Hebrew word, the psalm was written in Hebrew, as the places that commend that we would fear God. The places that say you should fear God are encouraging you to see God in his greatness and to have your system electrified by it. Now it carries a fear because that God is powerful, but that God is also merciful. So you don't sit in dread, hoping that God won't see you. It's only when you don't connect with that aspect of God's greatness, when you've invited darkness into your life, where that reverence of God is not there, then there's a certain foolishness to also not have that basic fear of God, to think that God does not see all, that God is not just. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God doesn't know what you're doing. Maybe God will not one day make things right. And so there's a foolish kind of uh, picture here that those who don't revere God will eventually have their hearts hardened so they don't even understand the accountability that we have for our lives. And so this passage is not saying you need to be a bunch of anxious, uh, timid, fearful people, um, nor with hatred, the language of hatred here, uh, we think of hatred primarily as a, an emotion, but hatred in the Bible is often about choosing. And so the one in verse two that one should be finding out his iniquity and hate it, in verse four is, is called to reject evil, and the problem is this person is not. 
It's not about feeling hatred, although the emotion is part of it. When you see something that's destructive, that emotion against it is part of that experience. But then you're supposed to choose so that you don't get pulled in. The passage is not telling us that we need to be filled with fear and hatred. The passage is warning us that if we don't fear and revere and see God in his greatness, if we don't have that conviction to have the freedom to choose to do what is right and the ability to not choose to do what's wrong, then fear and hatred is going to be what characterizes your life. You're not being taught to do this. We're being encouraged how not to do it, how a healthy fear will restore your soul, how a freedom to make choices and to discern and to do what's right will be restorative. But if you're given over to darkness, then the consequence will be that you will grow with hatred, you will grow with fear. I remember reading an article some years ago about a guy who had robbed a bank, and I read this long enough ago, I don't remember the details, somewhere around 1970. And he turned himself into the police, this was maybe 10 years ago, and he went to the police station, he turned himself in, and technology not being what it is today, those paper files that the, uh, the police were not able to find any record of the robbery even happening, they had no idea who he was, and so they asked him, why did he come and confess to this crime and turn himself in? And I forget how much he stole. It was a good enough amount, but not so much that you could you know, move to uh, Switzerland and put your money in a bank and, and live off the, the field. It might have been ten, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, something like that. But his initial strategy was to, to lay low. You can't trust your friends. You can't trust your family. You don't know who's going to report you. And he wound up um, living an isolated life until he uh, ran out of his funds, unable to keep a job because he was never able to give his proper name. And he wound up living on the streets of New York for such a long time, he got to the point that it was utterly miserable. He realized he would be rather um, be in prison, bearing the consequence for his action uh, with his own name. And uh, rather than constantly hiding, every time somebody looks, him, looks at him for more than a second to think, maybe that person recognizes me, now I need to go to a different borough. He realized that, that the consequences of getting away with his crime were so great, he would rather just take the consequences that were there. And, and that's the kind of thing that the Bible portrays to say you think doing whatever you feel will benefit you. But keep in mind, God in his love and wisdom calls you to a good and rich and abundant life. And if you trust him, um, then you will find that things work out better. But if you don't, you'll find that the consequences are not necessarily what God, the, the law giver, is going to, uh, to do in a sentence, but, uh, which is not to say that that doesn't happen. But even if there was an, uh, a hypothetical getting away with things, the vision of the scripture is you shouldn't want to get away from things, things that are connected to God. And so Tim Keller in one place says, you can get away with your sins, but you can't get away from your sins. That's the concern. Our biggest hope is that we can get away with things, but the problem is we can never get away from them. And so at the end of the day, darkness feels like a tool because it keeps you from being seen and found out. But the impact on your life is that utter isolation. Now nobody sees, nobody cares, there's no punishment, there's nothing, there's just you and your guilty conscience and uh, no relationship, no goodness, no reward for having made good choices. And so uh, that's a picture of the darkness. 
the Bible is so frank about these things because it calls us to a better way, but this is where grace is so important. It says to the person utterly lost in darkness, you too can come. Most of us think I must take a few steps, I must have certain understanding, and the Christian invitation is, if you feel utterly lost, um, God will take you in. So he comes and he calls you. The problem, here's it's twofold. One is, at that point, if we've given ourselves over to shame, the thought of stepping into light, it's gonna be painful. If you've been in a dark room for 10 hours, when if a bright light goes on, it hurts your eyes. The fear of coming out. Um, but, but the other issue is we're people in process. So on the one hand, if you're willing to renounce everyone and just trust God's goodness and come into his light, part of the Christian life is now that you're stepping towards greater light, greater truthfulness, greater alignment, there's also the problem of the discovery that the more I'm getting better, the more I'm seeing I'm not getting better. And while you know that, you can be encouraged to keep going, but in most of us, at some point, the balance tips so that, that the things that are still unchanged weigh on us enough. So even if we know that we're better and God is making us better and God is gracious, it makes us desire the darkness. It's, it's the old habit that we know, if only I could be unseen. And yet that is the last thing we need. And so what I wanna to want to talk about today, now in this second part, is the shadow. Because I think there's something encouraging in this Psalm that reminds us that God calls us into his light but you need to understand the nature of God's grace and the nature of the light of truth, which is it's loving, it's protective. And therefore, if you're stuck feeling like the only thing is for my shame to be exposed, for me to be found out and to be dealt with for the wrong that I've done, you'll never come forward. Jesus comes into the world with an invitation, come, keep coming, follow me, come closer, which means part of the discouragement of the Christian life, ironically, is getting in tune with the problems that need to be fixed. It's not that we're becoming worse, we're becoming better. And yet that has a strange discouragement to it. So what I want you to be thinking about as you experience that, whether it's right now or in the future, in verse seven, uh, the invitation of those who, who come, the children of mankind, take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And I'm making a point of something that struck me today. I'm not sure this is fully theologically right. And so use this to, um, I don't think it's theologically wrong. I'm just trying to couch this in case you uh, do a word study and realize my distinguishing shadow from darkness is, it, there might be holes in it, but I'm trying to give you an image here to say darkness is utterly isolating. It's that voice that says, just go off where you can do whatever you like. And then you find you're utterly alone. It's, it's a voice that, that does not care for you. It's a voice that, that's destructive. Um, God inviting you into his light is of a very different nature. It's personal. The God that we've rejected wants to accept us, wants us to come nearer. And therefore, a place to go in God's protective place is not where he's going to expose and humiliate us, but where he is going to be a refuge for us. To know that that's the nature of God's process uh, for imperfect, very flawed human beings, is to call us out of darkness and into light. Um, but to, to lead us along the path. So the children of mankind, where Romans says all of humanity, all of mankind have sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. But yet there is grace so that we can come and take refuge and draw near to God. And we find that that outstretched arm winds up not there to grasp us, to punish us, 
uh, but to, to gather us so that we can have refuge. When Jesus comes, he comes with a very harsh word for the religious leaders because it was very important for them to get what they were doing wrong because they were leading others astray. Um, and there's a long history of God sending prophets. Read Jeremiah, for example, who um, uh, was sent by God but was, was rejected, was, was mistreated. There's Elijah. There's a whole bunch of them in the Bible. Jesus comes in that tradition as a final messenger in a with a final invitation, come and draw near. So Matthew 23, a, a chapter where there's a lot of critical words um, trying to make clear for us how deep the problem is. In verse 37 of chapter 23, um, Matthew writes Jesus as saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you are not willing. And that's the problem is it's that, that will that is given over to the wrong things that now we don't, we're not free to see God's grace and to choose it. But Jesus is sent anyway as a gatherer, as the extended arm of God to, to call us and to take hold of us. And the image he gives us is it's like a, a chick who has wings and is gathering uh, as a mother cares for her own children. Uh, the gracious nature of God, the steadfast love, is that while we were not deserving it, he still reaches out so we could draw near. But there's something protective. There's something protective that goes in two directions. One is for the hostility of the world, and the other is for the righteousness and justice of God. And this is why the gospel is so crucial, that Jesus comes into the world where people feared that he was going to mix things up politically and bring an end to their nation. And so they hated him and wanted to reject him. And so the one who comes in in John 8 says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the one fulfilling Psalm 36. He's the one who's saying, if you come into my light, you will have God's light. And yet he comes and we reject him. The one who claimed to be the light of the world was rejected because people love darkness rather than light. The gospel story is that God's love is steadfast. Um, that rejection, while it would be just to infuriate God so that he would do what we would do, which is just to end all things. Instead, we see the cross of Jesus Christ as another and really the full installment of this steadfast love of God. So you read the gospel accounts and Jesus claims to be the light of the world, uh, but this mysterious thing happens as he's hanging on the cross in the middle of the day between perhaps noon and three, darkness falls upon the earth. And there's a picture there that the one who is the light of the world comes into darkness, which is the encouragement to anyone sitting in darkness. He comes to find us. He does not want to leave us isolated. He comes to call and to gather us. But when he calls and gathers us, he's the one who also uh, faces the hostility of the world, but comes before the just God who has to deal with sin and he bears it for our forgiveness so that we can reject the world that would reject us anyway. And we could come near to the God who wants us to accept him because he has already accepted us. And in that sense, Jesus allows us not to be stuck in our shame or in our foolish patterns, but to, but to see the wisdom of, of the path of darkness and how it's self-destructive, but also to see the steadfast love of God who did that for us. And that's the thing that we need to understand in the grace that's presented in Christianity. 
that God's love is steadfast. We are not. Sometimes we're nice, sometimes we're mean. Sometimes we do good things, sometimes we do terrible things. We waver. God is unwavering, and his love is unwavering, which means he loves us and rejoices when we do wonderful things, but he still loves us and cares for us to bring us change and healing in the worst of times. And that is actually the kind of light we need so that we can really grow. To take away the darkness, that's not a tool. Darkness is not your friend. Darkness is just a thing. Jesus is your friend. And so we have in this passage um, the personal nature of things, which is not just you and your own life to get what you like. That's self-destructive. But it's God who calls you to gather you. And so in verse 7, where, where it talks about the children of mankind, the, the word mankind, there is a common one in Hebrew. It's the, it's the word Adam. So nothing too deep and profound is being said there. But this picture of the children of Adam taking refuge in God. And then last week, if you were here in verse 7, where it says, you give them drink from the river of your delights. The Hebrew word for delight is the word Eden. So I don't think there's an explicit theological point being made here, but the the imagery of, of the scriptures throughout is the children of Adam uh, are in darkness. We're wandering from God, but, but God gathers thirsty people um, to recreate this Eden, that, that, that place where we were naked and unashamed, the place where God was present, the place that was fruitful and filled with life, is the place that, that the, the start of the formation of that place, the very opening of the Bible, we meet a God who orders chaos, who, is, who has the power to contain what's wrong, uh, but his first action is to speak, let there be light, and that light is good. And when we walk out of the presence of God, we walk out of that light of grace. Jesus is sent to create and uh, to, to extend an invitation, come back to God's light. Um, but the interesting thing is we still live a shadowy existence. The world is not fully redeemed. Jesus has come and conquered sin and death, and yet the new heavens and the earth have not been formed. And so we live in a place where the world is a bit shadowy. Um, the possibility that, that good could be done is still there, but yet we still don't do it. And so in this shadowy existence, um, we're not in complete darkness, but nor are we in the fullness of God's light. And so sometimes the phrase is used, the already and the not yet. Jesus has already made salvation possible. We already have forgiveness. We already have grace but it has not yet done its thorough work. And so it's like we're um, in the shadows. And if, if you've ever stayed in an Airbnb in, in a, you know, a rural place and you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't see a thing in front of you and you wanna to go to the bathroom, but you're gonna afraid that you're gonna trip over something because you're not familiar with the space. Most of us have a device next to us, our phones that have a flashlight built in. You don't take the flashlight and point it at your eyes because that would be painful and would keep you from seeing. You point the light in front of you. Um, somebody staying in New York City with an Airbnb, unless you have blackout shades, you probably could get to the bathroom without turning on a light in New York City. There's so much light coming in from the windows that there's something shadowy about the New York existence that you wake up and it's not dark enough to sleep, but not light enough to read a book. Uh, but there you are. If you have to go to the bathroom, you could get by without tripping on things because there's just enough light to see, but maybe not enough to, uh, to enjoy the artwork on the wall. Um, we live at a time period where, where Jesus' light really has shined into our lives. And, and in verse 9, it says, in your light, in God's light, we see light. And yes, we need to look to Jesus, and we need to look God in the face, and we need to be restored. 
But in the meantime, in our struggles, in our insecurity, in the reality that we still are people in progress, the, the desire to, to go away where we can't be seen or dealt with, you have to recognize is, is a destructive desire. The desire to draw near to God is a life-producing desire. And so he's, he extends his arm to invite you, but he says, come near. And there's, there's shade there from the heat. He's not calling you to draw near so he could humiliate you, so that he could say, you know, like everybody else in your life, if only you would have listened. Don't you see how right I am and wrong you are? Instead, he says, don't you see how you misunderstood the steadfast love? So come draw near to me. And then in that shadowy reality, we start to see light. As we're near to God, God then will light the path before you as you sit in prayer and seek direction, as you try to live the Christian life and in your discouragement, rather than going away, you draw nearer for God to be the refuge, to be the one who helps you grow and change. What happens is then you start to see differently. So in verse 10, it's the prayer request is continue your steadfast love to those who know you. And that's the point. Um, it's not that God is there as some unknown being and we just need to learn how to live a religious life. God is the Father, the, the one who loves, and his love is steadfast. We need to draw near to him who invites us to be in fellowship with him. And then in his light, you will start to see light. And I've been highlighting that sometimes it's discouraging just because I want to acknowledge that reality. But what Jesus promises is there's great blessing in it. So if you can manage the discouragement and not give into your old habits and stay in the light, you'll find that actually God's light, as it shines more brightly, you start to see more clearly, you become a person who is not simply one who has received steadfast love, but who loves with greater steadfastness. And that's the thing we, you know, there's a phrase that, that hurt people, hurt people. That's the nature of the world. If you come in contact with evil, it shapes you for the worst. It makes you cynical. It makes you think that that's the only way to, to live. And God says it's a flat out lie. That's the way of darkness. Um, come and be a healed person. Come and know steadfast love. And if you understand my grace, how though you don't deserve it, how though I am still just, but somehow I have done something for you that was costly, sacrificial, precious. I gave Jesus so that you would have refuge and shelter, so that you could come into my light. If we understand that steadfast love, then it makes it easier when you're called to love someone, but your love is failing. And you say, I don't want to do it. It doesn't seem fair to love this person that we could sit and not think about all of the people who have failed us, but we could think about God who never fails us. And Jesus says to do to others what you would have them do to you. Don't do what everybody else did to you. What would you want them to do if you understand the gospel? What Jesus did is exactly what we want people to do for us, to, to love us despite our flaws, to show us mercy and grace. If you don't understand that, take time to study it. Gospel is powerful. God's love is profound. It is steadfast. The reflection on that that goes daily in the Christian life to remember, despite what the world is doing, despite what the news is reporting, despite what the ethics of my business culture is, God loves steadfastly. And if I have that, uh, that will help me. That will provide light. And then our prayer is, Lord, it feels shadowy. I don't know what to do. Should I quit? Should I report this person? Should I bear patiently? We don't know, but God, you've loved me steadfastly. Let that steadfast love be what I apply as I go out into the world. And then you'll find that not only is there greater light in you, but God's light shines through you, that you are somebody who is not just contributing to the destruction of our world, but you're somebody who is part of the healing 
and the repair. That's what the gospel does. And I just want to encourage you to find refuge in God's shadow this week. Let me pray for us. Our Father, as we gather today, gathering of very different people, one thing we have in common is we all need mercy. And Lord, all of us need help with our discouragement. All of us need light and we need grace and we need direction. We need refuge and we thank you for Jesus who calls us and we thank you for your steadfast love and pray that by the power of your spirit, that light would shine brightly into our lives today, not so that we would see all of our flaws with such clarity that we would wither away, but that we would see the greatness of you who formed the mountains and the seas, you who uh, put the stars in the heavens, you who loves even those who are not deserving of love because that's part of your nature. Help that light to shine so brightly that then we are able to, to hear the high calling of Jesus to live radically different, but to look more to where you're shining light than to reflect on our own failures so that we're not overcome by discouragement. Lord, lead us so that we would be a people with steadfast love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.